Hey folks, welcome back to the Brief Encounter podcast with me, Johnny Boyle. Uh, I must apologise um, for the four-month hiatus I had to take um, as a result of my laptop uh, dying about two weeks into lockdown. And lo and behold, four months later, I turned it on yesterday and it just came on. After me trying everything with it, I just assumed my laptop had bit the dust. And I'm very happy to say I'm back in business. So um, so episode five, uh, I have uh, Supremo drummer Nate Wood from the band Kneebody. Um, last year, 2019, Nate was working on his four project and touring with that. Um, if you're not familiar with that project, uh, it's where Nate plays drums, keys, bass guitar and sings all at the same time and does all of those rather well. Um, on this podcast, uh, Nate talks about uh, his equipment, his influences, his personal development, drummers he's loved throughout the years. Um, he talks about the benefits of using the internet for promotion. Um, he also talks about the cons of YouTube. And it's just a great chat about music and drums and life. And um, I obviously talk about how I discovered the band. Uh, I first saw Nebody playing in New York around 2016, maybe 2017. Um, a friend of mine, uh, one of my uh, students from BIM actually suggested I go and check these guys out. And um, so about a year later, I just uh, messaged Nate on um, Instagram and I brought him to Dublin to do some master classes. Um, he's somebody who I have a, a huge amount of admiration for, uh, both as a person and a player. Um, he's such a soulful and just talented musician. I mean, as a drummer, he's just one of the best out there. Um, and just any time I've seen him play, uh, it just blows my mind. Uh, we just had a great chat. We went to the Blue Light um, up in the Dublin mountains where I've taken the guys from Paris Monster. I've been up there with Katy Perry's drummer, Adam Marcello. Um, it's a great place overlooking Dublin. Um, it does a great pint of Guinness. And I do find... Uh, when I do these podcasts over a couple of pints of Guinness, the conversations te- uh, tends to flow really well. Um, so look, I hope you guys enjoy this. Over the coming weeks, I'll have more podcast, po- podcasts, I can't even speak, I'm out of practice, with um, the guys from Paris Monster, uh, Jeff and Josh, and I also have a podcast with uh, Rick McMurray from Ash, um, and I'll be recording a few more over the summer. So I'm back in business, baby. Hope everybody's safe out there. Um, it's been a crazy few months. I can't believe it. I haven't played a gig in four or five months, um, which is the longest I think I've gone in 32 years. It's a very worrying time in Ireland for musicians um, with just the levels of uncertainty. Nobody knows uh, when we can go back and play together again. I'm kind of quietly optimistic. Uh, I know it's a very difficult time for a lot of people, both mentally and financially. So um, for any musicians out there, just mind your head, mind yourself. um, And don't be afraid to ask anybody for help. Uh, I'm just trying it keep my own head above water right now and I know how tough it is for everybody out there so stay safe people and I hope you enjoy this interview with Nate Wood from Kneebody take care stay safe bye I suppose something I'd like to ask you is just about your sound. Did it take a long time for you to find your kind of kit sound and your choice of cymbals, or did you go through a series of different types of kits and stuff like that? Uh, I feel like by the time I was 23 or so, which was in 2002 or 2003, basically the same sound I have now. Um, I played the same way, same kind of drum tuning. Um, by about that time I'd found what I liked sure um, so yeah it was like Gretsch kit four piece open bass drum you know somewhere between jazz and rock the sound yeah and uh, yeah by about that time but when I was growing up playing it was like you know I kind of like when I was a kid I kind of fantasized about a seven piece DW kit you know like yeah. 8, 10, 12, 14, 16 and like you know, kind of played that kit for a while, and I was like, I don't know, this just doesn't really feel right, you know? Yeah. And then, kind of the first time I played a Gretsch kit, I was like, oh yeah, that's that's where I want to live. 
And I wanted a kit that I could play any kind of music on. Sure. So the four-piece just kind of felt right to me. And, uh, yeah, and that Gretsch kit, the way that it's tuned, that I've always tuned it since then, it's like I can kind of use it for anything. You know, yeah. I do kind of like rock pop sessions like that, you know. And sure. it's like the kick drum sounding like that, it always fits in the music, even though people are kind of surprised. Like, oh, I didn't think, you know, an open kick would sound like, you know, would work. But yeah. That always works. So yeah, I, I, is it what a twenty twelve and a sixteen? Is that, that what you? That's use? generally what I use. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I use a fourteen, mm-hmm. and I've no use for a twenty two inch kick anymore. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I have one, but I never use it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's funny because I was talking to you earlier. You know, you were saying you bought a drum book recently, and yeah, you, you don't seem to be the type of person that's gone into the kind of the nitty gritty of drumming you seem to kind of just play from from your soul i suppose if i mean does that sound corny but you know in terms of going to college and stuff like that was there any particular you know systems or anything like that that kind of took your playing to another level or did it just come from because i know you played a lot you were telling me you were playing in vegas you used to Mm -hmm. do really long shows with your parents and stuff like Mm -hmm. that so was there was there any particular method that was like a breakthrough point for you uh yeah, not really. I always thought that it was like, basically the breakthroughs were when I would find a new artist or a drummer that I liked or something like that and would open up new avenues, you know. Yeah. Um, but, Anywhere. I mean, really, it was just playing, it was just playing gigs. That's that's the breakthrough. Yeah. It's like we were talking about it earlier. It's it's harder to play as much now. There's less gigs than there were when we were kids. And I yeah. felt like I got to play when I was... Right out of high school, I literally played seven nights a week, four hours a night, you know? Yeah. And sometimes two gigs a day. And that was like, that's how I learned how to play, really. You sure, know? sure. Um, so I feel like that was the biggest growth I had was that summer because I was just playing all the time. Yeah, yeah. You know? And that's... There's certain things you just can't get out of a practice room when you're just playing with people. It's like a yeah. whole other sound, you know? Your Absolutely. sound has to change. Your The way that you, man, you man, manipulate time has to change. It's like, you know... It's like conversing with people as opposed to running lines. It's sure. like the difference to me. You know? Sure. So, um, was there any particular because that's kind of what I did? Was mm-hmm. I just studied drummers? You know, mm-hmm. like we were talking about Will Calhoun, or mm-hmm. you know, I mean, some of that stuff on those Living Color records, particularly the second records, some really complex fills and stuff like that. The first album's a bit, mm-hmm. you know, it's an easier one to play along to. Yeah. But that's kind of what I did. There'd be an yeah. album I'd like, and I would just literally learn every song on that record. Was oh, there yeah. any particular standout records or drummers? You know, I mean, I never transcribed note for note ever. I would just kind of play along to records when I was a kid. Um, if I liked a record I'd just play along to it and I would just try to mimic it but not learn it you know I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't learn the stickings or whatever I was just like it kind of sounds like this but I don't want to imitate it I'd just rather just kind of improvise over it and see what it feels like and try to have the same feeling of it sure so uh, yeah so that's the way I did it Um, you know and that was just like when I was a kid it was like you know I played along to, I mean, I went through a bunch of phases of like metal and death metal in my early teens and then into like fusion, like Dave Wackel stuff and, sure. you know, and then to like Steely Dan and the police and Alan Holdsworth and Wayne Krantz and that kind of stuff. And then like Tony Williams with Miles and like that kind of stuff. Like those are the records that I play along to. And then hip hop records and James Brown records and yeah. playing to a click. I played a lot to a click because my dad being a musician um, you know, he would always talk about drummer's time or whatever. So, yeah, yeah. So I always worked with a click. I've always been playing with a click since I was a kid. You know. Wow. So, and I was doing clinic. I was doing sessions for my dad when I was about sixteen. Right. Okay. So you know, and I had heard like he hired X and Y, and you know, I could hear these drummers, you know, on his recordings, and be like, okay, you know. This works. This doesn't. This is what I'm going to try to do. You know, kind of thing. Sure, because I, I actually heard you say before in an interview that um, the drummer for Kenny Loggins mm-hmm. kind of had a certain amount of influence on yeah, you, or Tristan gave you some Bowden, advice, yeah. or. Well, no, he was he was my hero, Tristan yeah. Bowden. He was um, he still is my hero. He's an incredible drummer. Um, he was in my dad's band, Honk. They went to high school together, okay. and they had a band in the early '70s, and that's where my mom and my dad met. And he was a phenomenal drummer back then. Apparently he practiced six hours a day back then, you know, Jim Chapin books and stuff like that. Yeah. And um, when he got into Kenny's band, he was a 
kind of underrated, really underrated drummer, I think, you know, kind of from the Gad school, but a different kind of feel, more driving rock kind of feel. Sure. Um, but my dad said that first record they made, they would do, was a live, the Kenny Loggins record. And some of those are edited from, you know, the first night of a tour and then it's the same song, you know, the chorus out, second chorus out or whatever from the last song of the tour like four months later. But there was never a click track. It was just his time was that good. That it was like yeah. the songs were the same tempo every night. You know, he was just really kind of crazy internal clock. You yeah. Know? So he was always kind of a god to me and still is. Like when I listen to him, I'm just like, man, it's such a natural player, you know. And would you have gone to many of those shows? I'm sure you would have yeah, been as a kid and stuff. Yeah. Did you go on tour with them or anything like I that? I never went on tour with them, but I also got to see him play with Honk, my, my parents' band a bunch. and So that was always really inspiring. And I took a couple lessons with him, and he was really nice and you know, always really encouraging and stuff like that. Sure, yeah. sure. And I, I grew up another, with another drummer, this guy, Frank Continola, who is a, a local drummer more in Orange County, but he was another drummer that my parents always played with, who's kind of like a Keltner vibe like real great feel pots and pans kind of player sure and uh i got a ton out of him too and he gave me my first kit and he used to play with me when i was like three years old we would like double drum yeah he would play a fill and i'd try to play it back and stuff like that so he was those two are my my main influences for sure, sure sure yeah well that's cool that's cool yeah. I, I remember just playing along to the radio mm-hmm. and you know pl- to things like or, you know, playing along to, like, Madonna records and not realizing it was, like, Tony Thompson. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, Robert Palmer records. Or, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't even know the drummers I was playing along to, you know? Right. As Easy Top Eliminator, that was a big one for me. Uh-huh. That that just taught me how to play time. Yeah. And kind of play solidly. Mm-hmm. You know, it was an easy enough record to kind of mimic, you know, for a 12-year-old. Right. You know? So, uh, in terms of, like, uh, you know, being a teenager and gigging and then, obviously you decided to go to college then mm-hmm. to, was that to obviously improve your skills as a musician or yeah I guess so kind of find what direction I wanted to head in and uh, also as a way to live in LA and not have to work you know because I, sure. I grew up in Laguna Beach which is an hour from LA and a lot of people who gig down there would just gig down there and never go up to LA you know they called it the Iron Curtain it was just like a real divide between Orange County and L.A., you know. Yeah. So I wanted to live in L.A. and play in L.A., you know, and so I kind of went to college up there to kind of suss stuff out, you know. Sure. But, um, but yeah, when I went to CalArts, that's kind of how I got into, that's how I met the Knee Body guys. And sure. Got more into the, like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, they were really encouraging to just find your own self, you know, kind of thing, which yeah. is what I was always interested in. So and when I was there, I just worked on things I wanted to work on, you know. Sure. They didn't, uh, was, yeah. it, was it a conscious decision to become an instrumental band? Yeah, Kneebody was, yeah, yeah, totally. It was the way that that band formed is we had an every Monday at this coffee shop at UCLA with that same group. And it was like all my favorite musicians, like those guys were all great and we all had profound respect for each other, but we would play jazz and it was terrible. Every yeah. gig we did was like, this is the worst music I've ever been a part of. It's like we had no chemistry. It was really strange. Yeah. Like I'd play with all these other bands and it was like, great. But I was like, these are my favorite musicians and it sucks every week. What is the deal? And then we kind of kept doing it, even though it was terrible. And then Ben, the sax player, got a call to do a gig uh, at this a bigger venue. Like the, It's called the Temple Bar and it was like, you know, rock stage, you know, like rock sound system raised stage more of like a dance kind of environment and he was like let's just hire the same people let's just have the same people and just play more like backbeaty kind of you know uh, instrumental music yeah. so everybody wrote for that gig and it was it was like gig one it was like killing it was like oh we were just playing the wrong style of music you okay know? so you found your sound yeah we found our sound and then it was just like from then on it was just easy it was just like oh yeah this works really great <laughs> yeah because somebody so. somebody described your band Kneebody uh, basically said if Radiohead were a jazz band that's what they sound <laughs> like you know which that's I thought cool. was an interesting uh, kind of uh, comparison you know mm-hmm. um, because there is that ability to kind of wig out mm-hmm. but also you know, you guys can do some really simple stuff really well. Mm-hmm. Some of the songs are kind of really peeled back, and there's lots of space. Mm-hmm. Like, was there was there a conscious decision not to have a guitar player? No, it was just a combination of people. It yeah. was just it was just those guys all went to Eastman together, and then Adam, the keyboard player, met me 
Yeah, Cal Arts and introduced me to those guys, and that was just it. It was just like one of those things of like, yeah, I went to school with them, you know. Yeah. So, but Adam wanted the power of he wanted it to sound like a guitar, so he was one of the first p- people I heard uh, augmenting his roads with distortion pedals and delay sure. pedals. To I kind of pushed him in that direction too a little bit, yeah. so I'll take a little bit of credit for it. <laughs> but um, but to to make it sound more like a guitar, so we could go to that more rock place if we wanted to. You know? Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, because I, I mean, I hear particularly um, Anti Hero mm-hmm. was that was a big record for me last year and the year before mm-hmm. because you know the funny thing is I discovered your band by accident. Mm-hmm. I was in New York and one of my uh, graduates sent me a message saying you got to check these guys out. Mm-hmm. So I went, I got tickets. I went to the Poisson Rouge and Mark Giuliano was opening up and mm-hmm. um, I'd seen Mark play before in Dublin mm-hmm. and um, I brought my wife along and you know my wife likes music mm-hmm. but you know to just bring she would be like well I don't the average punter and she just loved the band and immediately mm-hmm. we went out and bought the records and mm-hmm. um, and you know I've been kind of plugging your band ever since you know mm-hmm. um, was that album nominated for a Grammy? Mm-mm. No okay we had a record that we did with Theo Blackman that was the music of Charles Ives that was nominated for a Grammy okay okay but yeah would you yeah. I mean I definitely think yeah uh, Anti-heroes, you know, your best record in, in, for me. Oh, would you? Would you? Would you? I'd say that. that. I mean, yeah. I would hope that they get better as we keep going. You know. Yeah. So yeah, I, that was that would be my favorite record for yeah. sure. I mean, I like the new ones that's coming out too, but it's a little different. But and yeah. that's out in October. I think it's October. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll have to get you to play Dublin at some point. Yeah, I'd love to. You know? Do you find? Do you find? Because I mean. If I was trying to do this like a podcast 20 years ago or if I wanted to get in touch with a band that you'd have to, mm-hmm. I don't know, look up the yellow pages and find like a management company or an agent and go through them and write them a letter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, do you find with things like Instagram and Facebook that certain opportunities, because I mean, I met you through Instagram, yeah. I just sent you a message. I, I don't know if you get many chancers kind of mm-hmm. emailing you or asking you to do stuff that's a bit cagey. Mm-hmm. But it was the same with Paris Monster. Mm-hmm. I just sent Josh a message, and within 24 hours, I was I was booking a gig with his agent, mm-hmm. which for me is great mm-hmm. because you can kind of make things happen really quickly. Is that is it a kind of benefit? It's a huge benefit. I mean, for me with this four project, it's 100% internet driven. You know, that's it started through the internet and continues to work at all because of the internet. Yeah, it's yeah. like nobody existed before. That was really the same thing you know it was more of a kind of old school book gigs you know yeah it, it was a different thing but yeah i mean it's incredible these the opportunity i mean just as you said like you you know you were able to help fill in this tour and the last one and it's been great to get to come to i do get opportunities like that like with this tour that i'm doing now this four tour i had one gig booked and i just wrote an instagram post hey i'll be in europe and then i just got some gigs <laughs> it's yeah, pretty cool yeah yeah so yeah it's great would, would, would you say that's like playing that's the most enjoyable part of of this whole industry would that be the most yeah, enjoyable part for you i think so or is it the creative process or it's hard to say i think playing is is really fun i think for me too like if i'm writing something and i hear it back on speakers like i'm working on something either my own records or a four record or anybody record or whatever and i hear it back and I like it. That's probably the, actually the best moment, you know. I'm sure, like, I'm proud of this. That's the coolest thing. Absolutely, absolutely. Would you would you consider doing like a four album? I mean, I know you're releasing mm-hmm. kind of track by track, and I know it all stems from improvisation. And yeah, yeah. Well, I, I have a record. The record came out. First record was July last year. Okay, it came out. Yeah. Okay. And it was just that. It was just the same, you know, process. But um, and it was the stuff that was already on YouTube. But yeah. Because I think you were saying earlier as well when you did your master class that you kind of you'll play and you'll pick mm-hmm. like a section of a song and go well that works with that. We were talking about Peter mm-hmm. Gabriel as well. Mm-hmm. It's almost like he makes music like with post its and a whiteboard mm-hmm. and yep. he's kind of almost like putting a jigsaw puzzle together. Right. You know that's like when I post Instagram clips. You know you're putting up these thirty second clips and someone mm-hmm. might go oh yeah man that's a cool clip and I'm like yeah but you want to see the other two minutes of crap I played. You know right, what I mean? right, I'm right, just right, picking right. like twenty seconds or yeah, something. Cherry that picking might have right. been a good idea but like the rest of it's just nonsense. You know. Mm-hmm. But um. I mean, what, what, I suppose, what's part of the industry then that, that 
maybe you don't like so much because it, it, it's very different to what it was. Mm-hmm. I remember recording in the analog days, mm-hmm. you know, you had to go in and do pre-production and rehearse for weeks. And there was, I mean, digital recording has its pros and its cons. Mm-hmm. But I suppose, uh, you know, the, the industry is constantly evolving. It's probably becoming harder to make a living mm-hmm. as a musician. What's, what's mm-hmm. part of the industry that you'd like to see change? You know, actually, <clears throat> this is kind of interesting, but I started thinking about this the last two days. It's YouTube is the problem. Yeah. And it's funny because I was at Music Maker, the the Dublin place, you know, the Dublin music store. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm, here. I'm noticing these bands that I know, like, you know, like, you know, Mar- Margaret Glaspy or like Phoebe Bridgers or just all this playlist of modern artists that I know, you know, I know their music or whatever. And then I walked over and I saw, I was like, oh, it's YouTube. It's like, they're playing it. They're all on YouTube, you know? Yeah. And then I was at, even I was at BIM today and it was like, oh, they're playing Antihero. That's or like a knee body or an older knee body song. And it was like, oh, it's YouTube. And it's like, YouTube is the worst way to listen to music for I the know, artist. it's compressed and it sounds... No, but because t- the artist doesn't make any money. No. That's the reason. Unless you're what, getting a million hits? No, you don't. A million hits, no way. It doesn't... Like, 40 million maybe on YouTube. Okay, okay. But a million on on Spotify, you might actually see some money. So I think actually the thing that I would say, it's it's interesting because I'm I'm just kind of coming at it from a a new perspective, which is that everybody demonizes Spotify and uh, and Apple Music and all these things. But actually the problem is YouTube. Yeah. So I'm like, if you want to support music or even just listen to music for, for free, listen to Spotify instead of YouTube. Okay. That's like the one thing that I would like to see change because YouTube is like, it's the worst. I mean, they they make it impossible for you to take off copyrighted content, you know, that you, you know, that somebody else posts. Like if people are posting your record and they might make it if they, they might make money if they post your song. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's really hard to get that taken down. So, um, but it's an interesting time because I feel like uh, it's like apparently it's they they say it's like you know when radio first started it was just like well where does the money come from where does it go to who does it go to so yeah. this is kind of like the wild west of of music again because it's like there's music everywhere but nobody knows how to monetize it or where the money's going to go to or who deserves the money but it'll get figured out yeah you know it's like uh, I had some um, Ben's stepdad as an entertainment lawyer and he was saying. You know that that's that's what all these streaming companies are are waiting for. Is they're waiting to get sued. You know, like yeah. they've made X amount of money and they've paid all these record companies X amount of money to get access to their catalogs, and they know they're going to get sued, and they know that they're going to have to reevaluate how the whole system works. But then it'll be really beneficial for everybody, and the music music industry might actually be profitable again. Sure, sure. So it's actually kind of exciting. It's just right now it's really hard to make a living. Yeah. But, I, I, I think even before streaming, mm-hmm. you know, it's almost like the game is rigged to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a tour once. We were talking about the cores earlier. Mm-hmm. We sold, as a support band, I think we sold, it was like 5,000 albums or maybe 10. Mm-hmm. It was 10,000. Mm-hmm. So what happened was we bought the CDs for 450 from the label. Mm-hmm. The merchandisers took 25%. Right. The venue took 25%. Right. So I think after selling 10,000 records, we went on tour and we came back and we owed five grand. Right. Like 10,000 albums. And they're not registered sales. We could have had a top 10 record in the UK, but we didn't, you know. And even back then, before any of these streaming services were, Mm -hmm. you know, out there, um, we were were still losing money, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you'd spend 60 grand making a record, Mm -hmm. a label will sign you for 30. Right. So, you know, straight away, you you know, you're not... Yeah, you're losing money, I know. I've I've never made a penny from from an album. Yeah, um, and, me either. You know, but I've made a decent living from playing. Yeah, which I'm fine. I'm I'm happy about that. You know. Yeah. I think if you can make a living as a musician, it's kind of a privilege to some degree. Definitely. You know. I 100% feel that way. And actually, I've I ask people, especially people that are a little bit older than me. Um, I'm 39, but and I had a taste of the old model of. Um, of the music industry. I just had a taste. Like when I graduated college, I was in a band that was, that did well and had a gold record and platinum in other countries. And, you know, but I ask people older than myself, like, would you rather have the music industry the way it was then where you have people kind of telling you what to do and you have to pay all this money to make a record 
but you might make money on the back end or would you rather have the freedom to make it in your apartment you know yeah and for me i'd way rather take this this climate than that you know where you can make a masterpiece and then the A&R person gets fired that that signed you and then your record just sits there for four years and there's nothing yeah. you can do you know like I made this four record in my apartment and I mixed and mastered the entire thing and I did all the videos myself yeah I paid somebody to put the art together and that was it <laughs> yeah but for better or for worse that means anybody can make a record now yeah and I think that's slightly that saturates the market and it, it does it, saturate it, the market you know if somebody made this point about record labels where they said mm-hmm. well at least there was some kind of benchmark that mm-hmm. you had to get get across before you got signed and at mm-hmm. least if you got signed yeah there would be an opportunity then so you know mm-hmm. it's almost like you'd have to pass this test yeah so you know so crap bands would never get that far or yeah. you know whereas now anybody can put a record out yeah I, I honestly I like that I think yeah. it's like I, it's just ultimate democracy ultimate like um, you know anybody can have a great idea and even just change the way music is made because they're like you know anybody can make a record on their phone with GarageBand and it's Absolutely. like because I've I, some people that I like you know it's hard to explain but I I've, sometimes I like the artistic intent of somebody who's a non-musician way more than somebody who's a schooled musician. You know, sure. I'd rather, li- rather listen to somebody who just comes to art from like a dance perspective or a visual perspective or, you know, as opposed to somebody who's like, yeah, I'm trying to make music in this lineage that's very specific. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So I prefer that personally, but it does make it really confusing, you know? Yeah. But in a way, it's kind of exciting. It's just like, who knows what's going to work and who and what isn't going to work, you know? Sure. It's kind of frustrating, but it's also kind of awesome. Yeah, so, yeah, that's yeah. wild. That's wild. Yeah. Like I, I really like this guy John Bapp, who's um, uh, he's a, I just <laughs> he's like, I think he lives in Texas still, and actually, um, JD Beck plays drums drums with him. Do you know who JD Beck? JD Beck, no. He's a sixteen year old kid who's like, better drummer than anybody you've ever heard. Wow, he's just like crazy good, like, total prodigy kid. Um. But John makes these records that are like like Prince records through this prism acid trip and there's like micro tuning and odd time signatures and all this weird shit and he does like a he has a record where it's like starts with a guided meditation for like twenty minutes and that's how the record starts. You know, and it's like all this weird shit. And I was reading up about him and he's like he works at he at that time when he was making these records, it's like he was working at Chipotle and that was his day job, you know. But he's making these records, it was like Wow, that's a combination of elements that I never would have heard. Sure. Never, and no record label ever would have, especially now, would have been like, I'll take a chance on that guy. Like, microtonal, yeah. like, 9-8 pop music? Sure, you know? Yeah. But he had an outlet because he could make it all in his apartment, you know? And then the buzz gets around from musicians, like, check this guy out, you know? And it was like... That's- so I like that. It's like, there's a lot of people who I get to hear because... And also, like we were talking about earlier, it's like certain personality types. Like I'm a real recluse, but I don't have to have a ton of uh, drive to just put something on the internet. You know, like yeah. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I'm not a real sociable person, so I'm not going to like try to get a record deal or compromise the way I want to make music in any way. So sure. It's I would rather just have the ability to press upload. You know, yeah. as opposed to like learn how to socialize in a certain way or whatever. Yeah. And there's a lot of artists like that that I really like, you know, like John or Chris Wiseman is another guy who's one of my favorite songwriters alive right now who lives in um, Vermont. And he just makes incredible music and makes like three albums a year, wow. you know, and uh, teaches guitar lessons and kind of just doesn't really care what happens with them. Yeah. It seems like. But yeah. he's write, writing incredible music, you know, yeah. just amazing, my favorite stuff, you know. So, Cause it's an you, interesting time. You said to me before that, um, you know, there's not many people that you'd, you'd kind of call a, a genius. Mm-hmm. There's very few people. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. know Tegan Hamasian is one of one of those. Yeah, yeah. Was there any other people that... Mm, good question. Oh, that's, a, that's a tough one. I mean, I can tell you my favorite artists right now. Um, it's hard to say who is a genius and who isn't, but, like, I love Lewis Cole. Yeah. yeah I love Lewis. I love... Um, Love John Bapp. I love Chris Wiseman. I love. Uh, um, you're gonna have to edit this because I'm like drunk enough to not remember his name. 
um, I'm just thinking of younger artists, you know. Oh, God, I'm, I'm really bad with names. Oh, who are you telling? Names of songs. I can't remember names of songs. That's, yeah, I can't I, remember. I, I just know the numbers. Put on track six. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I can't remember names or faces. But uh, but Pedro, Pedro Martins is another yeah. guy who's incredible. Um, and Frederico Heliodoro, his, his friend who's a bass player. Um and uh, yeah, there's just like a lot of people who are like a little bit younger than me who are just like making really amazing shit. Sure. And it's kind of like their music doesn't really belong anywhere. Yeah. And that's those are the kind of people that I like where it's like, what the fuck? Like, yeah. what room do I put this in? Yeah. You know, like it's kind of like, it's kind of dance music, but it's kind of jazz, but it's kind of like Beatles, but it's kind of experimental. Like, what is this? You know, yeah. and that's that's the kind of music that I like where it's like, it doesn't have to fit into some kind of box you know sure sure well that's good so. for me that's that's what kind of anybody does for me mm-hmm. because i'm not like you know obviously making a radiohead comparison it's it it's a bit vague mm-hmm. you know at moments you can hear elements of led zeppelin mm-hmm. you know um yeah. but i can't i can't you know put a clarification on any of it really you know but, yeah. but it just works uh, but you know, even people like Tigran Hamasian, I mean, he's just his music is it's really out there. Mm-hmm. But it's incredibly inventive and melodic, and yeah, you know, I feel like everybody I just mentioned, and I feel like anybody included in that, they're all just trying to take the things that they love and and make something out of it, yeah. as opposed to like I'm going to fit in this box of something that might be, you know, acceptable because it's worked in the past, you know. Yeah, yeah, and I feel like like. Jazz, like jazz as education, possibly, and, and jazz, like as a label, it's already gotten to the point where it's it can be kind of stuck in the rigidity of of something that was has crystallized and will never be able to cha- be be changed. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like, um, and uh, but yeah, that's I I'm not interested in anybody who's trying to do that into pres- in. I'm not interested in people who are trying to preserve a music that was great. Sure. 70 years ago sure, sure 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 like all my favorite artists are like like i really like all this stuff i'm putting it together i don't know if it's good or not i just i'm gonna yeah see what comes out naturally you know yeah well as you say like there's that freedom to just you know as you say you, you can do anything you want and put it out there because we were talking about fishbone earlier mm-hmm. and how they must have been an a and r man's nightmare back in the 90s because mm-hmm. you couldn't put them in a box because mm-hmm. they were a ska band mm-hmm. they were metal Mm-hmm. They were heavy rock. They were, you know, funk. Mm-hmm. You know, the gospel. The, everything was in there. Like just so many different elements of of music. You know, mm-hmm. um, but actually going back to you talking about YouTube because I love the whole thing of discovering a band or an artist by accident. Mm-hmm. So Snarky Puppy was one of those bands mm-hmm. where I just stumbled across them on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lewis Cole was the same. I mean, the video for Overtime, which was shot in that apartment, I think mm-hmm. in New York, was it? No, it was in his house. Oh, it was in his house, was yeah, it? No, yeah. I, yeah, I mean that that. That just gained it. That was the kind of song that really put them on the map, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you were kind of saying how Lewis Cole has that great balance of of using YouTube as a vehicle, you mm-hmm. know, and and that, that's kind of developed into him now, but getting an audience and being able to tour the world, mm-hmm. um, you know. So I suppose it does have its benefits to some no, degree. Hundred percent does, yeah. Because it feeds into like playing. Obviously, playing live seems to be where it's the one place musicians can make money mm-hmm. not a lot of money mm-hmm. but you can make money if you keep gigging mm-hmm. you know um, I mean do you think there'll come a point where you, you won't want a gig anymore does that whole thing of like I'm look, I was looking at Brian Downey from Tin Lizzy like he's 70 mm-hmm. and he's still gigging mm-hmm. I mean that gives me hope <laughs> you know yeah yeah will you just keep going I would for sure because I I mean that's the only way to know where I am where I stand you know and uh I, I need it as like an emotional outlet to, to, to play, you know. Yeah, it's super, it's crucial. Yeah. It's crucial to play, I think. And um, that's my favorite thing about like jazz and like, you know, like I got to see Paul Motion a bunch before he died and he was better than ever until he died of cancer one day, you know. Yeah. And he wasn't safer. He was less and less safe as he got older. Like he just yeah. played more and more like a, like a, punk asshole you know yeah. like he was really like that's what i like it's just like you know you get to a point where you're just like fuck it you know i'm gonna do i mean i think he was maybe always like that but i remember seeing elvin right before he died too and i saw max roach right before he died and they both sounded amazing you know yeah and like 
that's I think I'll I would be the same I would always play live you know yeah. for sure because a friend of mine saw Buddy Rich in Derry in Ireland mm-hmm. and um, he said he was it was about a year before he died mm-hmm. and he literally there was a guy helping him mm-hmm. kind of get onto the kit yeah. and he said once he once he set behind the kit that was it it was just off train, he went right, right. you know incredible yeah incredible would he would he been someone who was an influence or an no. inspiration a lot of <laughs> a lot of jazz guys they don't yeah they're not huge buddy rich fans he wouldn't even be in the top 500 to me because <laughs> there's philly joe yeah philly joe i mean for me tony williams is my favorite drummer of all time um he's the only drummer in history who reinvented the drums twice more than once yeah because he reinvented jazz with miles davis like the way the role of the jazz drum set completely changed when he was playing with Miles, and then he basically invented fusion drumming. Yeah, it was like he started Tony Williams' lifetime, and it's like you can see the entire progression of modern drums from him. You know, yeah. he just got two B's and a big sticks, and and all this language that everybody plays today. You know, yeah. just twice as fast. Fred was Fred the track on on Lifetime. Yeah, but I'm thinking of the first Lifetime record. Okay, the, have you heard that record, Emergency? No, who was oh in that band? Oh my god, dude. John McLaughlin. Yes, I and have. Larry Young. I have. Yes. Yeah. Yes. First track on that record is it's the best drum. I mean, I think that's my favorite drumming record of all time is Emergency. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah. 24 he was like 24. Four piece kit just fucking balls to the wall. Yeah. Just insane, you know. And it was like I think it was recorded before Bitches Brew was recorded. And that's mm. it's just a crazy album, but but him, I love Elvin, I love Jack DeJeanette, I love Paul Motion, I love, um, I love, I don't know, I, I like all those guys for different reasons. I mean, those are probably my favorite, my favorites, you know, in terms of guys who played with melodies, you know, who would take some, a melodic concept and change it over a long period of time, and you didn't sure. know what they were going to do sure. next, you know. Um, so, at least right now, that's, that's what I'm going to say. But, did you um, get to see Tony Williams live? I never did. I, I I had tickets to see him when I was in high school, um, and he died the week before. Wow. Yeah, I was seventeen. He wasn't that old. No, he was he like was... fifty-four or something. Yeah. He's actually younger than Jack DeJohnette. Far out. Which I I didn't realize until I started googling people recently. I was like, he's like actually two years younger than Jack DeJohnette. Wow. But um, but yeah, I, I had tickets to go see him at Catalina Bar and Grill, and then he died. Because like, he kind of had, a, I think he had a heart attack, did he? No, or something? no. Was it, it was a, it was a, it was medical malpractice. It was like he really? went in for a r- routine surgery, and they botched the surgery, and he died. Really? And it was like it was something simple. Yeah. You know, I can't remember what it was, but it was like he should not have died. Holy he was like fifty-four shit. or something. Yes. <laughs> wow. So, I yeah, s- it's really sad. I saw him in '93. Mm-hmm. in Glasgow mm-hmm. with Will Calhoun and Vinnie Caliuta. Mm. It was like a Zillusion day, mm-hmm. and he had his yellow DW with the red rims, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he was just, you know, like I said, the way he was dressed that evening, I, was, I got to hang out with all the guys afterwards, and he was wearing his suit, and he mm-hmm. looked like he was going to the cotton club, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. he just looked like, and he was smoking a big cigar, you know, <laughs> he just oozed class, you know. Wow. Yeah. I I, uh, I I played PASIC this year, and I got to hang out with Greg Bissonette for a while, and we sat and like had dinner together and he studied with Tony, which wow. was amazing. And not many people got to study with Tony, but Tony would, he would, he would give you a lesson if you, you know, went to his house, which was in the Bay Area, I guess. Mm. And he was saying that like the thing that blew him away about Tony most was like he, he had a hunger to like always, uh, like re, reassess himself and kind of like, uh, have rebirths, you know, kind of like, just to change what he was doing, you know? Yeah. So like he, his last, the thing that he never got to do was he wanted to like, he wanted to go more into metal, you know, like uh, kind of combined like Metallica with like Tony Williams sensibility. And he, Greg said that, you know, like, I think maybe Greg introduced him to double bass drum or double pedal or something like sure. that. And he came back the next week and Tony was like blazing double pedal. He was like, like crazy double pedal chops. And Greg was like, how the fuck are you doing that in one week? Like, I just saw you last week. You didn't know what this thing was, and now you're just killing it. And he's like, I practice a lot, but really everything that I can do is just because I will myself to do it. I'm yeah. just like, he's just like, he had he had this determination in his mind that like he saw something and he just did it. You yeah. Know? Like really kind of like crazy focus, you know. Wow. So I thought that was really interesting. 
Wow. It's funny because you look at someone like Jimmy Chamberlain mm-hmm. and it's only from listening to Tony Williams that I, I realised, okay, now mm-hmm. now I see where there's a lot of similarities in, in Jimmy's style. Right, well, Parti- totally. You know, um, because it, I suppose it, it comes from, it always comes from somewhere. Yeah. You know, we're, we're constantly stealing from, from each other. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, I mean, I, I see Tony as like, you know, Cobham came from Tony and then Dennis Chambers came from Cobham and then like everybody came from Dennis Chambers who plays now. It's like the entire drumming community. Yeah. I mean, most everybody who plays now sounds like Dennis Chambers. Sure. So to me, it kind of all goes back to Tony. And then, you know, of course, Tony sounds like Max and and uh, Alan Dawson and his heroes and stuff too. But sure. that's, how it, that's how it works. But yeah. Did you say you played with Gary Husband? I, I never played with him, but I'm a huge fan. And he came to see me with Wayne Krantz in London and he was very complimentary. Yeah. Um, but no, I've always been a huge fan of his. I think yeah. he's one of the most underrated drummers and musicians because he's I mean that first Holdsworth record he he was like 18 or 19 yeah and it's incredible and not only is the drumming incredible but there's a piano solo on that record that's incredible and that's him that's too him. yeah he's a ridiculous piano player it's insane player. but he was like 18 or 19 when he did that record I mean that's yeah. crazy and I, he was one of my favorites when I was younger and still is because he had the Tony thing where it's like, it's fusion language, it's fucking loud. Yeah. But he was a true improviser. He wasn't yeah. just putting combinations together that he knew really well. He was really improvising, really sure. making melodies and taking chances. And He knew how to back up Holdsworth in the way that no other drummer did because he knew he understood the harmony and he could understand the contours of what Holdsworth was trying to do. Mm. You know, so I thought he was, he still is like, one of my favorites for sure yeah I, I, I would have um, known about him from when he played with level 42 yeah do you know what I mean like right. back in the what early 90s right you know because he took over from Phil Gould who was Phil great, Gould was great great drummer yeah great drummer really like Phil Gould's playing you know yeah his brother Boone actually died recently Boone who was the guitar player mm. in level 42 mm-hmm. but Phil's still playing he's a piano player as well mm. I think he actually wrote all the lyrics for level 42 oh really a lot of the lyrics yeah uh huh um that's why, yeah. Gary Husband, he's, it's funny because he, there's some drummers that look really weird behind the kit, like the way, the way mm-hmm. his body moves is, it's, it's, it's very interesting, you know? Yeah, but he has such a unique sound. It's like the way he hits the toms is just like, whoa, it's so intense. Um, and you can kind of see it when he plays. It's just, he has a, he, as you said, he has a different way of playing that he, I think he was just so naturally talented that he never really had to work on it, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so he kind of came up with his own way of playing, you know? Yeah. Which is how, I mean, a lot of my favorites kind of seem like that, you know? Yeah. And in terms of, because um, you were talking about, did you play double kick for a while? I did when I was a kid, You kind yeah. of got into metal, like what, what kind of metal? Was it Metallica? Yeah, it was like, but yeah, I got into Metallica. I went through the whole progression of like glam rock into Metallica into, you know, death metal, Sepultura, and then I got really into death this band Death, this record human, um, and the drummer was this guy, Sean Reinert, who, 19, when he recorded that record, and it was to tape, it was before you could edit shit, you know, and it was just yeah. like, the whole time, <laughs> but it was like Vinny shit on top, it was like yeah. Vinny call you to language, and all those guys, the guitar players both sounded like Holdsworth, and like, they read the liner notes, and they're like, we'd like to thank like Gary Husband and Holdsworth, and Vinny call you to for all the influence, like they were really just like fucking fusion heads, you know? Yeah, yeah. But over this like brutal like oh you know like crazy death metal shit, so I was like oh this is perfect it has everything. But I got tendonitis in like two, like a month of trying to do that. Just trying to play this stuff. Yeah, because I think you're supposed to train and shit like that, and I've never done that. I'm just yeah. like oh I like the fastest thing. I'm gonna just try to do it, you know. And I got super bad tendonitis, so I gave up on it. And so since then I've just tried to do all my fast shit with one foot. Like I was just like I'll just see what I can do with one foot, and that's my limitation to myself. Yeah. Yeah. So. You're, you're great at doing those kind of three or four hits in a row. Uh-huh. Is that is that a sliding technique you're using? Or? I have no idea. Like, see, yeah. I, lo- I love the fact that you just do stuff and you're like you're not too concerned about the mechanics of it. You just do it. Yeah. Y- you know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of like, yeah, I just like, I'm hearing something and I'll just try to figure out how to do it, you know. But yeah. yeah, I've been working on that technique since I was 23 again. It's like the same thing. It's like, 
want to be able to have that have the same kind of agility that a hand has you know sure sure so that's funny because like looking at young drummers you know who don't use any finger technique mm -hmm. you know you ever see drummers trying to play doubles and the fingers are out and they're trying to you know yeah, right. use the bounce and for me i remember trying to learn rosanna uh -huh. and, and you know trying to play a shuffle on the hi-hat and i just had to figure out oh okay to do that you can't do it with your arm you've got to use the rebound and your fingers and stuff like that or because right. you know i don't think you you were saying to me before as well you don't get too bogged down in like the all-american rudiments or you know yeah. what i mean like yeah. there's is it phrasing with you or is it just do you hear something in your head as you say and you just want to play it yeah it's pretty much that and it's like you know i want the feel to be good i want i want the you know i don't know yeah it's just really just yes or no for me but but actually recently i've gotten more into technique just kind of checking out drummers that i like and i'm like how do they play i just started analyzing it to be honest yeah. like you know oh so and so uses more fingers or so and so uses more wrist or like tony played like this he played with the back two fingers yeah and he said he, he all of his favorite drummers played where the back two fingers were the fulcrum because you can get all your control that way he was like bounces for losers he's like really? he's like it's all about the wrist he's like everything is here you know yeah and so i've kind of been analyzing those a little bit and um dan weiss is a good friend of mine and one of my favorite drummers and i think he's one of the greatest living drummers and he He's kind of analyzed all those techniques and he was kind of showing me like, oh, some finger exercises and stuff like that and, and Tony Williams grip and all that stuff. So I'm starting to work on it a little bit more now. Sure. And it's opening up some doors. So I think that stuff's great. I've just never cared about it, but now I do because there's certain things that I can't do that I want to be able to do. And it's like, oh, yeah, if I just actually learn the thing that everybody else learns, then it's, it's way easier. <laughs> yeah, but it's funny because I, I was watching Brian Downey, the drummer from Tin Lizzy possibly the most underrated drummer of all time mm -hmm. you know when you see these rolling stone top 100 drummers and it's like not a mention of them. it's just a popularity contest it is but yeah. you know he's one of those kind of guys that you know i think he deserves to be celebrated a little bit more you know because he brought mm -hmm. swing mm -hmm. like i mean he was a blues drummer really you mm -hmm. know playing heavy rock back in the day but I, w I was actually watching him there the other day at the side of the stage and again, you're talking about like the back fingers, and it's all mm -hmm. in the wrists with him. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so because I always get confused about technique. Should I be using more finger technique or more wrist or? Yeah, I don't know, man. <laughs> I think they all sound different, and that's the kind of thing. It's like you shouldn't really care because you're probably going to get to the sound that you want to get to just by accident. Because you're like, I hear a sound in my head. You'll probably just get there because your brain will just do it eventually. But yeah if you play with your fingers it sounds completely different than if you just play with your arms versus if you just play with your wrists versus if you just play with the back of your hand they all sound different yeah you yeah. know so i guess if you master all techniques you end up using some combination of all of them and then your sounds are more varied you know sure so, sure sure so that's kind of what i'm thinking about doing as i get older you know sure is there anyone you'd like to you'd like to play i, I you were talking about greg biss and i know he plays with ringo Mm -hmm. we talking about older guys Ringo's still playing yeah I know and I mean I know he's a very clean living guy now but I mean he was a boozer he was not, <laughs> he yeah, was he a not a clean living guy before yeah you know uh -huh. but um, is there anyone like that you'd like to you know if you got a call for something like that would you be would you be into it I hate to say it but not really um, I kind of at the, I'm at that point where I just want to do I want to follow my my own thing wherever that takes me more sure because um, that's the thing that keeps my soul the most engaged, you know, is yeah. like not as a supporter, but I mean, I like being, I'm a supportive player. When I play with people, I support, you know, I'm not like, look at me, like I'm not that kind of, I don't see myself that way anyway. But I'm more interested in what I can do with writing and, uh, you know, my instrumental voices and all that stuff than I am in backing up somebody. So, and Lewis is an inspiration for me in that way, Lewis sure. Cole, because I've known Lewis since he was like a 19 year old kid. And uh, he was already amazing when he was 19. He was already, yeah. like, he gave me his first demo, a demo of him back then. It was, like, already full-fledged Lewis. It was already, like, brilliant, you know? Yeah. And I asked, talked to him about, like, you know, how he's decided to live his life. And he's like, yeah, just he just is falling through on his own voice and trying to find that, you know? And yeah. that's, it takes a crazy amount of courage and patience and kind of, like, uh, uh resolve to do that <laughs> as opposed to like yeah i want to gig with so-and-so which is cool there's nothing wrong with it it's just it's i think it's a lot harder to just be like it's all coming from me holy shit you know yeah it's really scary i mean for me like the four project is scary in that way because it's like you're putting yourself out there in a way that you don't have to if you're a sideman you know 
Yeah. So it's interesting. I'd but, rather have that. Yeah, but obviously you derive some like a creative satisfaction from that and freedom. Yeah, yeah. As well. I mean, today you were playing and you were talking about, oh, I did this bit here and this was just improvised. And mm-hmm. so there's a real... Because sometimes you can get boxed in as a musician if you're working for somebody or, as you say, as a side man and you're right. being, maybe you're being told what to play or somebody, you know, you're there to do a specific job. Mm-hmm. Whereas there's a lot of freedom, to, you know, with what you're doing with your four project. And, I mean, you're, you're doing it alone. Mm-hmm. You're, you're tour managing yourself. You're doing... Because I know a lot of people struggle with, say, touring alone because mm-hmm. they might find it, like, like a comedian, for example, or a singer-songwriter, they can find that existence a little bit lonely from time to time, mm-hmm. you know? But you don't seem to suffer from that. You, you like your own company. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I haven't, I haven't done it enough to really know that, though. It's one of yeah. those things you don't really know until you do it for a long time. I've never had a, a two-month tour by myself. You know, that might yeah. be, like, insanely lonely. I'm not really sure. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I like right now it's like this project is really fun for me just because, yeah, it's like a – I don't know of a project like this that was really, you know – there isn't a whole lot of precedent for it and that's what's exciting to me you know yeah is like and then just yeah the freedom to just like oh i can just do whatever i want you know <laughs> absolutely well, i mean so. when you look at a band like paris monster i mean again you've got like josh playing keys and singing mm-hmm. and jeff on bass mm-hmm. do you think this has kind of been born out of necessity now where bands are having to scale down yeah Be- because josh was saying like they tried to play to backing tracks and stuff like that and it just just wasn't working yeah so they built this kind of modular unit that they're using and mm-hmm. it gives them much more freedom as well yeah and they're not restricted to clicks and all that kind of stuff you know yeah well i think i mean josh is like he's one of the pioneers for sure i mean he's one of the reasons that i do this project too for sure him and d'anthony parks like those are the guys who brought multitasking to the front I always did it as a background person like playing drums and bass and singing supporting people uh, and they were the first two guys that I saw who did it as a project as a leader you know Yeah. and Josh had the Josh Dion band before he had Paris Monster and that was another thing where he played keys and sang and played drums all at the same time and uh, he did that like 10 years ago so he's been doing it for a long time Yeah. and I think uh, those guys I mean Josh is just a spirit animal he needs yeah. like the freedom to just <laughs> To play what he wants to play. He's like a real, he's just, he can't be boxed in by tracks, you know? He's yeah. too good for that shit. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I do think part of it is necessity. But also it's interesting because it's like, I think maybe Josh runs into this, but it becomes like the band that does this thing versus the music, you know? Yeah. It's like, oh, you got to go see this guy who plays three things at once, you know? But it's like, no, the Paris Monsters music is awesome. Exactly. Like, if you heard them and you didn't know it was a guy singing, you know, like Stevie Wonder and playing drums like John Bonham, Keith Carlock, and playing like Stevie Wonder synth bass all at the same time. Yeah. If you didn't know that, you'd be like, oh, this is a badass band, you know? Yeah. So I think it, it's interesting. It's it's one of those human things where it's like, it's helpful and it's a hindrance. It's like, I think I remember Dave Matthews saying like, your biggest handicap when you're a band that sounds like no other band is that you don't sound like any other band. Yeah. Until you become successful, and then that's your greatest asset. Yeah, you know, and I see that with Lewis too. I see that with Lewis Cole, where it's like there was a long time where it's like, where do we put this? Yeah, and it's like all the musicians like it, but then eventually it catches on. It's like, no, now there's like people who are going to start sounding like Lewis because he's successful. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like it's an interesting thing, but I think the 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 touring of less musicians. The solo duo tour thing is just that's what's going to happen because it's just economically more viable. It's yeah. way harder to tour as a quartet or a trio or yeah, yeah, you know? absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's funny because it brings me back to YouTube where I discovered Josh again. Uh, you know when he did the an in studio performance of Vision Complete, mm-hmm. and uh, he actually posted something recently saying, "Look." I'm not a solo artist. This is my band. And because I think that particular clip was getting a lot of traction mm-hmm. and obviously he wants to bring the attention more towards the band. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm finding that sometimes people see this stuff on YouTube or they listen to it on headphones or they listen to it on their shitty little laptop speakers. Mm-hmm. And that's enough for them to actually go and see that band, mm-hmm. which, you know, I booked the guys last year and I stood up the front for the whole gig and when you hear that music coming through a PA mm-hmm. and you're insane. there and you're in the moment, that's, that's not going to match what's on YouTube. Yeah, totally. Or even on record. Paris Monster is one of my favorite live bands. It's like incredible. Yeah. They actually opened, the first time I saw them play, I'd seen videos of them, but they opened for Kneebody. And for me, they blew us off the stage. This was like five years ago. And I was like, I'm never letting that band open for me ever again. It's just like, 
It was just too good. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, but there's something, yeah, about seeing something that, you know, just hearing the way that it sounds in the room, it's, it's a really important experience. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. That's why, you know, people need to get up off their asses and support music and mm-hmm. get off YouTube. Yeah. You know? I see it like, and I, I hate to say support because I don't feel like it should be anybody's job to have to do anything. And I, I, I mean to clarify that too with the YouTube comment earlier. It's just that the way that people demonize streaming and then use YouTube for free, it's like, well, okay, if you're going to demonize it, just use it because it's better than this other thing, you know? Yeah. But I don't think it's anybody's job to go see gigs. I just think that, like, it can be really enriching in a way that you don't, wouldn't expect, you know? Like, you'll just, it, it, you might carry something away from it that will last for two weeks as opposed to, like, 20 minutes or something. Yeah, you know? absolutely. But for me, I, I suppose being a musician, I, I, mm-hmm. I feel responsible for if I do go to a show and I like a band and, mm-hmm. you know, if they're selling a T-shirt, I'll buy a T-shirt because I know that mm-hmm. money goes in their back pocket. Yeah, totally. And, and I, I think if I don't buy a T-shirt or a mug, mm-hmm. that those guys might not make another record or they mightn't be around because they can't afford to be. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, You totally. know, because a lot of bands now, that's their income. It's not even from playing live. Yeah, you know when Paris Monster played here, you know they didn't make as much money as I, I would have liked, mm-hmm. but we're building on that, right? You know, but uh, you know, and merchandise is one of the few areas where bands can maybe make mm-hmm. some money, and, yeah, and it, where it's sustainable and it keeps those guys going, you know, yeah, because it is harder the older you get, you know, when you're younger you can kind of work for free and you can have a nomadic existence, mm-hmm. but you know when family comes into the fold or children or that kind mm-hmm. of stuff that complicates everything and makes it a little bit more difficult to do you know but yeah. i think that's why a lot of guys maybe fall out of the, the scene sure, as well yeah, you know totally. yeah you know it's my it's funny my mom actually i remember a conversation that i had with my mother who's a great musician uh and a super smart lady she, she prophesized that like in like 1985 on the way to like a like a, the grocery store i can remember going to the grocery store with her and she was like i think the music industry is just going to get less and less profitable and all the people who are in it to make money are just going to fall off. Yeah. And all, all that's going to be left are the people that just don't have a choice. They just have to play music and there's no other choice. Yeah. You know? And I think that's what we see happening now because there's no yeah. money in it. So it's now it's just people who are just like, I love this. I can't do anything else. I have to yeah. do this. You know? Well, I, yeah, that's, that's a, it's an itch that has to be scratched. I suppose I, I spoke mm-hmm. to an actor recently and then, you know, and I, I, you know, it's, it's that thing where being a musician or an actor or any artistic endeavor, it's like a calling, mm-hmm. you know, and he told me, he says, it's not that I wanted to act. He said, I had to, mm-hmm. you know, and he says, I took the good and the bad with that, mm-hmm. you know, where I was working, it was great. When I wasn't working, it wasn't so great. Right. You know, so I think, I think trying to maintain longevity in any kind of artistic endeavor, it definitely has its ups and downs. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I look at the type of project you're doing now and then you've Kneebody mm-hmm. and then you did three solo records mm-hmm. and they're completely different. Mm-hmm. I was really surprised because when I put them on I mean, the last time I spoke last year when we spoke you were like mm-hmm. yeah was, you know I'm, I'm influenced by like bands like XTC which blew mm-hmm. my mind mm-hmm. that you were kind of citing those kind of people. Was, was mm-hmm. there any themes on those records that you tried to address or anything like that lyrically or? No it was the same thing it was just kind of putting stuff sounds together and making them things that I liked, you know? Sure. Um, uh, yeah, I have an, another like secret influence. Who's kind of my biggest influence is this guy, Richard Steckel, who my parents grew up playing with, who I consider him one of the greatest songwriters ever. And he's probably my biggest influence harmonically, guitaristically, uh, lyrically, everything. Um, so Kind of the first time I heard his music, I was like, oh, I want to make music too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he's like really where the inspiration came from, I think. You know, I was like, I, I haven't, I'd never heard music like this before. Nobody has, except for me and my parents and the other people who knows music. But uh, I was like, I want to make music like, like that because I think, you know, I just want to, you know. Sure, sure. So, uh, yeah, so that was really it. And then otherwise it's just, you know, yeah, just trying to, I just feel a need every few years to kind of like, put a record out or something you know sure sure so yeah well does anybody kind of satisfy that in the sense that no you, not you, at all you know yeah no it has no. to be it has to be a nate wood record or a floor okay. record or whatever okay my own writing and my own like i do everything like that's the kind of the thing it has to be that sure 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 yeah. so so what are you what are you gonna do next i mean i, I mean yeah. this project's been gone for what a year and a half now yeah it's really it's really recent so 
I don't know. I'm going to keep making records with this project and just see where it goes. I don't really have an agenda necessarily. Yeah. Hopefully I get to tour because the more I tour, the better the music gets. Uh, so I'm going to keep doing that and uh, keep going with Kneebody. And, uh, you know, I master records too. Um, and I that's how I kind of make most of my living now is mastering records. Sure, sure. So I'll probably just continue to do all those things and just see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's it. Just yeah. follow the follow your heart. Exactly. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Thank you.